BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So do you think that the Trump death cult pastors and priests and politicians are going to get away with this lie? The uh, cleanup is continuing now down south from the hurricane that was a lot worse than it needed to be if we hadn't been lied to for 60 years by fossil fuel billionaires and their companies about global warming. Uh, we've got a new democracy-hating, religious cult, QAnon-believing right-wing group, but really there's nothing new there. I'll get into that in a minute. There's also a GOP candidate who wants men to be men again. I'll tell you about that. Dr. Justin Frank is going to drop by, the professor of psychiatry at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., the School of Medicine there. Are crackpot fake news stories actually causing mental illness? among people who are just, you know, addicted to Facebook and stuff like that. So that's what's coming up in the program today. <clears throat> I think it's really important that we constantly remind ourselves where this all started. Back in March, April, and May of last year, Donald Trump was looking at an election coming in November and knew, as Every politician knows, as every president of the United States since Thomas Jefferson has known, when the economy falls off the edge of the cliff, the party in power loses. And Donald Trump wanted to get reelected in 2000. He wanted to get legitimately reelected. And actually, had he been able to hold the economy together and had there not been a pandemic, he probably could have pulled it off which is one of the things that makes me wonder if the pandemic was like divinely inspired. Well, let's not go down that road. But anyway, you know, he probably could have pulled it off. But instead, he got the pandemic and the pandemic slowed down the economy and the economy slowing down caused the Republicans to lose the House, the Senate and the White House. But Trump didn't want it to go that way. Trump really apparently believed that, you know, I mean, this is a guy who spent his entire life BSing people. He lies people into buying condos. We've got, you know, Ivanka and Don Jr. or no, Kuse, uh, uh, <laughs> Eric, on camera. You know, it's, I mean, they've been charged with this, right? People have sued them for lying that, you know, to them about the occupancy rates and things of Trump Soho, I think it was. So, you know, throughout his life, Donald Trump has been able to basically create false realities and be such a convincing salesman. He's like the music man, only without a heart. You know, in the end, 
in that movie, The Music Man, the guy who is a hustling con artist turns into having a heart of gold. Well, that's not quite how the Trump story ends. But anyhow, Trump wanted to get reelected. He didn't want the economy to go to the toilet. So he figured that if he could just get people to ignore the fact that there was a deadly pandemic happening and continue on with their lives as normal, keep going to the store, keep going to work. Yes, some of them are going to get sick, you know, but only one or two percent were dying, maybe three percent at the most. I mean, that's not that many. And only maybe 10 percent of them were seriously disabled for the rest of their lives, probably. So, you know, get everybody else back back to work. That was Trump's strategy back in April, May, June, July, August, September, October, you know, leading up to the election in November. Well, Trump lost the election. And you would think that after Trump lost the election that the Republicans and the preachers and, and the Trump humpers and the maggots, that all these people would say, okay, Trump lost the election. We can stop trying to convince people that there's no such thing as a, as a COVID pandemic. We can stop trying to convince people that, you know, if you just uh, stick an ultraviolet light bulb up your backside, that it's going to cure you. Or if you drink some bleach or, or if you take some, uh, you know, uh, horse deworming drugs or, or an anti-malaria drug, that everything will be fine. We can stop that. We can go back to actual science. I mean, keep in mind, these, these Trump humpers are people who, if they had a headache, they would take an aspirin or an ibuprofen even more modern. It's not like they don't believe in science. They get in a car, they turn the key, they expect the car to work. That's science. It's electronics, it's, it's you know, the physics of uh, internal combustion engines. They, go, they walk into their house in the winter, they turn the heat up, they expect it to work. They believe in science. They're not complete idiots which raises this really interesting question. Why is it that after Trump lost the election, that the people who were following him, you know, the Christy Nome, you know, the governor of South Dakota, who now has the worst, particularly the counties where the Sturgis rally happened, has the worst increase in COVID sickness and, and hospitalization and deaths in the country. Why Christy Nome and Ron DeSantis and and uh, Greg Abbott, you know, and and uh, uh, what's his name down in Mississippi? Why they don't just say, okay, let's get vaccinated? I mean, a few of our Kay Ivy, I think she's Alabama, came out and said, you know, it's the unvaccinated people who are causing this problem. Now she's shut up since she said that. She got in a lot of trouble from the right. So why is it that they're still going along with this? I would posit, and I ask you this as a, as just as a, as a question, you know, do you think that I'm right about this? I, I think I am. I believe I am. In fact, it would probably make a great op-ed is I think what we're looking at is pure tribalism. People during that period of time who had bought into the Republican shtick, you know, the Republican party, the Republican Party made the decision in 1980 to become exclusively the party of very rich people and very large corporations. But you can't win elections like that. So they built this coalition. They brought in the people who are, you know, who hate the, the white people who hate people who aren't white. 
They brought in the, the straight people who hate people who aren't straight or fear them. They brought in the, 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 the men who, ha who are concerned that their, that their equipment isn't large enough and so you know, cling to their guns like prosthetic penises. They brought them in. They brought in the people who believe that Jesus is going to return to America, to the world, any day now. And by the way, he's a good white Christian. He wasn't actually a Jew. He didn't actually have dark skin. He's got blonde hair and blue eyes, don't you know? Or at least brown hair and blue eyes. And all of the hustlers on their behalf. They brought all these people together and said, okay, you're all Republicans now. And by the way, we've got some weird beliefs like, you know, we're going to pretend that this pandemic isn't actually happening because we want to try and get our guy reelected. But after he lost the election, you know, the people are still following all this other stuff. You know, they're still, yeah, yeah, Republican, it means NASCAR. I mean, it doesn't, obviously, but, you know, they're, they're, it's their brand, right? Confederate flags, that's us. Monuments, we want monuments. I, you know, I get all that. That's identity politics. That's, that's tribalism. But what tribe goes around saying, yes, and we want to embrace a deadly disease? The only possible answer I can come up with is that these people are so invested in being members of this, basically, I think you could call it the haters tribe or the fearers tribe, the fearful tribe. Authoritarians, we know, are more, more motivated, authoritarian followers, about 20% of the American population, more motivated by fear than anything else. Fear of other, fear of immigrants, apparently not fear of disease. Or maybe it's fear of vaccines. Maybe what they, what they have succeeded in doing is making these people more afraid of the vaccine than they are of the virus. Or more afraid of the mask than they are of the virus. Really, though, what I think it is, is that they're afraid of being tossed out of the club. They're afraid of no longer being part of the tribe. And thus you get like this, uh, this priest, Father Michael Panicali in Brooklyn. My brothers and sisters, you are, this is a verbatim quote, you are under absolutely no obligation to take a vaccine that is made, produced, manufactured, tested, even in the most remote ways with aborted fetal cells. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. Be very careful about this vaccine. I mean, he's saying this to his parishioners, right? Be very careful about this vaccine. If I were you, I would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. I will never, because it leads to complications. Right. And this guy's still preaching. He's a Catholic priest in Brooklyn. Why would he do this? Why would he cause his own people to die? And our Republican, uh, you know, as, again, I'm not asking that entirely rhetorically. I believe that the reason why is because he wants to maintain his membership in the tribe, in the club. Now, we'll see what the limits of this are. Ron DeSantis is now starting to fail in the polls in Florida. Quinnipiac University just did a whole series of new polls in Florida. And what they found is that 60% of Floridians want their kids in school to be wearing masks, 
61 to 33 percent. Floridians said this recent spike in COVID in Florida was preventable. Well, if it was preventable, why didn't it get prevented? Because of DeSantis. 73 percent of Floridians see it as a serious problem. 59 percent say that the pandemic spread is out of control in Florida. 68 percent say local officials should have the power to require masks. 69 percent say it's a bad idea to withhold pay for school officials who refuse to mandate masks or who, excuse me, who try to mandate masks. 59% say everyone should wear a mask indoors in all public spaces. 63% say masking is a primary public health issue. DeSantis is underwater. Now, we haven't seen similar polling on Christy Nome, who just poisoned South Dakota and is leading to hundreds of deaths there. We haven't seen similar numbers on Greg Abbott, who has been poisoning Texas and is causing hundreds of deaths there. We haven't seen similar numbers on Tate Reeves in Mississippi, if I'm remembering his name correctly, or any of these other Republican governors who are all outspoken about this kind of stuff. These are the high profile ones. But how much longer are Americans gonna buy this stuff? How much longer is the Republican party going to be able to maintain as part of their identity, not just the flag and NASCAR and country music, but we like disease. We like the COVID virus. Take some horse deworming paste, that'll cure you. How long can they pull this thing off? We've got about a thousand Americans a day dying right now. We haven't, had, we haven't seen this number, these kind of numbers since last year. A thousand people a day. And over 90, 95% of them are people who are not vaccinated. By and large, Republican followers. I don't have an easy answer for this. I'm watching this and I'm just aghast. Jan in Spokane, Washington. Hey, Jan, what's on your mind today? Oh, yeah, I was just thinking that's the problem, I think, with Americans over history is that they, they think that if they elect this guy, you know, he's going to solve all the problems when they don't realize it's not just one guy that it takes Excellent point. all the people around him. And if not, they're more important than even he is. And if Trump's legacy, whatever, doesn't show, prove that, I don't know, you know? Yeah. This belief <laughs> that some politician is going to save us is just as toxic as all the other ones. Yeah. And then another thing is my father was in the service for 28 years. But he was a historian. I mean, he read, I mean, MacArthur, you know, all that mm -hmm. stuff. And he always taught us to pay attention to history, to pay attention to what's happening on the other side of the the world, because eventually it's going to, it trickles down or, yep. you know. It's going to end up here. And, yeah. Or we're going to end up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, well, we were stationed in Germany when it, when I was about 10 to 13, and when we went there, he said, we're not living on the base, we're living with the people, so you learn their culture, and you know, mm -hmm. and that's when um, the Olympics happened. Oh, interesting. The terrorist attacks in the, in the Olympics. Right. And my brother was going to high school in Frankfurt, and I swear every three or four months they had bomb threats on, on the base. Yeah. And then, and he had to stay in a dorm because we lived hours away. So, you know, he had to go 
for the week was and that, come home on the weekend. Was that the 70s? That was when Aldo Moro got kidnapped by the Red Brigades and the, and the, the Grey Hand was operating in Germany and you had uh, the November 14th group down in Greece, all those groups. Weren't those, wasn't that the 70s? Um, or am I misremembering? No, well, we were there from 68 to 72. Yeah, okay. Okay. So. Yeah, and it was, uh, um, I'm trying to remember that, the terrorists that took the Jewish team. Mm -hmm. and, and it turned out to be a big debacle and everything yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, I saw how it affected my, uh, my landlady, you know, because I said they were German. Mm hmm. And the first thing was, oh, no, now we're going to be blamed, you know, because of the Holocaust and right. stuff for that. Right. And so, I mean, when 9-11 happened here, I, I wasn't that surprised, you might say. Yeah. Because, like my dad says, it always comes home. Well, 9-11 was blowback for the Iraq invasion of the first George Bush, you know, because yeah. what he did was he yeah. put U.S., he, uh, for the very first time, we put U.S. troops mm -hmm. on Saudi soil at the Prince Bandar Air Force Base or whatever it was called. And, and that was what Osama bin Laden said he was attacking us over, was that there were yeah. American soldiers on sacred Saudi soil. The men were drinking alcohol and watching pornography, and the women were driving cars and showing their elbows. And he said, yeah. until this stops, I'm going to attack America. Yeah. And then, of course, George yeah. Bush pulled us out of those out of that Air, Air Force base about six months after 9/11. Jan, thank you for the call. Uh, lessons learned, good lessons learned. Uh, but, uh, your, your father was a good man. Thank you very much for the call. We'll be right back. For a smart man, anyway. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Death in the Pines, a novel set in uh, Vermont. 
You have to be crazy to do this. On a morning when the Vermont winter sun shone pale and weak across six crisp inches of fresh snow, when the temperature hovered somewhere between 20 and 25 degrees Fahrenheit, I spent a long time searching for 10 stones. They had to be the right stones of a certain weight and shape, heavy but not so heavy they exhausted me, rounded but not so much that they would roll from the place I set them. In the chill, near silence of the forest, I stood over the structure I'd made and looked off into the distance, seeing but not seeing the brownish shafts of pines streaked with snow, the bare gray trunks of maples, the white and gray columns of birch, the deep-shaded greens of white-burdened firs. At that moment, the urn felt heavier than the stones themselves. This was why I was here. The mind drifts at such times. Even after six years, I could recall the particular night that had caused me to travel to this place. On that night, my mentor, no, by that time my friend, John and I had been slumped in the rotting front seat of an ancient rusting 55 Ford parked in the heavy, humid midnight of Central America. Despite the choking reek of insect repellent, voracious mosquitoes whined in through the open windows, and from time to time we slapped an offender, reducing it to a crumble of tissue to be flicked off with a fingertip. Still warmer than blood heat even at that hour, the dark air sizzled with cicadas. We had left our home base in Atlanta a week before and had taken a circuitous route to this dark clearing hacked from the jungle. We were waiting for either three or four men to emerge from a blacked-out warehouse, and we had no idea whether those men knew we were watching or how well they might be armed. What we would do depended on how many came out. If only three, we'd move in and recover what had been stolen. Four would make the recovery problematic, because that would mean that at least one of the men would be a local, complicating the calculus of violence. As I stood over the stone altar, every detail of our conversation went through my mind. A tape rewound and replayed. By that point in our lives, John and I had been partners for so long that we didn't BS each other, had no need to strain for machismo, no use for phony heartiness. We were a good team. We could finish each other's sentences, catch body language signals that amounted to a silent code, recognize unspoken concerns and anxieties in time to be prepared for the unexpected. We told all our jokes to each other years before. Once in a while, one of us might mutter two or three words of a punchline. The other would chuckle in appreciation or exasperation as the mood took him. That night in stop-and-start fashion, we had each spoke of good times we'd had. Waiting in the dark gave each of us a natural urge to talk. That was the one and only time that John had spoken of his quiet way in the forested hills of Vermont, thinking of the coolness of a New England autumn in that hellish tropic night. I'd never known that he'd been to Vermont. He had lived in Buckhead, a suburb of Atlanta, the whole time I'd known and worked with him. But in those suffocating hours of darkness, cool green Vermont was on his mind. Beautiful place, very peaceful, he said. I'd like to go back there when it's all over. I didn't have time to ask what he meant or what would be over. The job, the summer, the career, the life. At that moment, dim yellow light from a kerosene lantern appeared on the black face of the warehouse. First a line, then a thin rectangle then a fat square as the three men inside pushed open the double doors. John and I climbed out of our borrowed car and did our job. In the six years that followed that night, John never had gone back to Vermont, had never spoken of it again. And now for him, it really was all over. After the memorial service, after the will was probated, I didn't feel like hanging around Atlanta. So I made arrangements, gave most of my liquid assets to a community for abused kids in New Hampshire, and bought a cabin on 200 acres in the woods of Vermont. It was here I'd brought my old friend to the place he'd talked about. Pondering the finality of it all, I held the urn containing his ashes, a few bone fragments, and pieces of his teeth, ready to fulfill a promise I had never made. 
Such a time demands words. I took a deep breath of icy air and looked up toward the top of a towering birch. A squirrel made an untidy, tangled nest up there in the highest branches, and the animal itself, or maybe another squirrel, who could tell, hung below the nest, head down in the trunk, apparently gazing at me. I imagined the squirrel's bright black eye held accusation. The fall had gone on so long, probably for half the animal's lifetime. So what was the idea of all this snow? Was I to blame? Clearing my throat, I reached far back into memory, groping for the prayers I had last recited as a child. I heard myself say, Dear God, my words took flight toward the washed-out sky on puffs of vapor. As far as I could tell, no one heard them but me and the squirrel. My voice had a harsh tone even to my own ears, a rusty hinge catch. The book is Death in the Pines. It's an Oakley Tyler novel based in Vermont. I wanted to start by acknowledging and mourning the death of Ed Asner over the weekend. Back when, uh, when Louise and I and, and Rama Schneider, who was our, our first producer and helped us get this show off the ground, when we lived in Vermont and we started this program uh, from, from my office right off our living room. The, actually, the way we first started is uh, Rama knew some folks around Vermont who he had a radio show in, in uh, uh, near Montpelier, Vermont. And uh, he hooked us up with a guy, uh, his name was uh, Bob Rowe, who ran a radio station in uh, Burlington. And uh, in my theory, this was in 2003, and my theory was that uh, progressive talk radio could make money just like conservative talk radio, and it was a viable format, and half of America votes for Democrats, so why not have, you know, progressive voices on the radio instead of just conservative voices? And so, uh, you know, uh, Rama and Louise and I put this show together, and, and Bob put us on. He gave us an hour on a Saturday morning. It was right after the meet and greet, the swap, uh, the, or the swap show, you know, where people would, in fact, a lot of the calls that we got were people going, is that John Deere 360 still available for under $2,000? You know, that kind of thing. And... You know, we were just trying this thing out, and I wanted to make a tape, they, they called it back in the day, it actually was tape, to send to other radio stations, and ultimately this tape got us on IE America Radio Network, which was then the only progressive radio network. They had uh, t 28 stations, including uh, Sirius, the satellite radio. And uh, this is what got us on there, and, and uh, Ed Asner, uh, who was at that time a friend of a friend, I uh, reached out to him and said, would you be my first guest on my first show? And we're going to try and, you know, put together a really great show and use this to get new stations. And he was like, oh, I'd be pleased to. And so Ed was our very first guest. I met with him a number of times, had some really nice meals with him, got to know his then wife, Cindy. And he put a great blurb. I mean, the last time I talked to Ed was just a few months ago. He, he gave us a great blurb for The Hidden History of American Healthcare, my book that's coming out in a week and a half. Um, it's right on the front cover. And uh, it just, it just, uh, it pains me that he just, that he just left, left us. He said, this is his quote, he said, I would gladly follow Tom Hartman into hell. I'd be unafraid because with Tom there, I know the devil's minions couldn't touch me. It's literally Ed Asner's quote on the cover of my new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. And it just, 
you know, I know there's there's no doubt Ed is there's there's no doubt Ed is in the light, right? He's in he, whatever whatever kind of paradise there is. Ed Asner, good man, and we're all going to miss him. Uh, me, me. Uh, well, I don't want to say me especially. I mean, he's got family and closer, much closer friends. Um, so anyhow, I wanted to talk about uh, John Greenleaf Whittier as our starting here. You know, there's this kind of notion that is being spread among the media and and just you know people in general who are not all that familiar with the history of the United States that this phenomena of you know right-wing proud boys and and crazy white people going nuts in airports and and uh, uh, trashing women in general and going after minorities and and uh, you know all this kind of stuff is new in politics and indeed you know, since 2015, when Donald Trump started his racist campaign for president, trashing women, Hillary Clinton in particular, but, you know, he accused a rape of, of and, and, uh, and sexual assault of over 20 women. Um, it, it, this self-entitled, whining, preening, uh, racist so-called straight talk that Trump was engaged, started engaging in 2015, between then and now hate crimes and violence against minorities and against women have increased across the United States by about 20 percent, 19 and a half percent is the last study. Meanwhile, you've got these uh, so-called conservatives who've created this watch list of college professors suspected, in fact, they call it watch, the watch list. There's a link to it in my article today on, um, on HartmanReport.com. Let me see if I can pull up the URL for the watch list. Yeah, it's professorwatchlist.org if you want to check it out. So, you know, there, it's, a, it's the new McCarthyism, right? But people think, oh, it's like McCarthy. Uh, uh, and then, you know, they're corrupting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the entire GOP, these right-wing billionaires. And, and these people are showing up at school boards and threatening teachers and threatening school boards and threatening election officials all across the country. And everybody is like, oh, this is like, is he reinventing German Nazism or is this something that he got from Roy Cohn and Roger Stone? And my answer is, well, yeah, but uh, this goes back a long way. I mean, you know, today's Proud Boys are just what they called the churchmen of New England in the 1700s. They called the Klan Riders in the 1800s. Now, Joe McCarthy called them his fervent followers in the 1950s. You know, the so-called conservative, anti-race, anti-critical race theory politicians, they're just today's versions of John C. Calhoun, who was fronting for the plan, so-called plantation, the, the torture camp owners in the mid-1800s. And historically, these guys lose, but they do enormous damage to our country every time they come to power. And we have to learn from that. I mean, the Catholic Church went after Copernicus and then promoted crusades and pogroms against Muslims and Jews, authoritarians throughout history, typically motivated by deep-seated fears and ignorance, hate science, hate egalitarian values, and hate those who think or look differently from them. Ben Franklin was born in Massachusetts. He left Massachusetts when he was 16. He wrote about it in his first autobiography. It was because in Massachusetts you had to tithe to the church. And every Sunday they came around, and if you weren't in church, they'd come to your house and whip you. I mean, today, right now, the second largest cause of misinformation and lies about everything from Donald Trump to COVID 
be, you know, right behind social media, Facebook and their friends, right behind that, the second largest you know, vehicle for promoting these lies are TV preachers and churches and YouTube preachers. I mean, this is, and, and I, I, I quote at length in, in my piece over at HartmanReport.com today, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, How the Women Went from Dover. And I won't read the whole poem to you. In fact, I won't read any more of it to you. But basically, it's the story of these three young women who defied a local church leader who was also the political leader of this little town in, in New Hampshire called Dover. And it was a, a brutal winter. And he ordered them stripped naked, these three young women, tied to the back of a cart and dragged through 11 towns where in each town they were given 10 lashes, covering the snow with their blood. Because they dared stand up to basically male religious power, anti-science, and I, their, their crime was that they were Quakers in a, pres, in a Congregationalist town or a Presbyterian town, whatever it was. It was a right-wing Protestant town, and the Quakers are believers in peace, and they're tolerant of others. In other words, they were liberals, for God's sake. And back then, we had weedy, whipping and beating and stoning and hanging and nailing and being pilloried and dragging and burning and branding and all these other techniques. And, you know, if Trump and his boys could bring it back, if they get power again, they'll, they'll try to bring back probably half of those things. But this is not new. Instead of public whippings to humiliate their enemies, they use social media truck caravans with semi-automatic weapons and giant flags. They pick fights in airports and public parks. Instead of denying that the earth goes around the sun, now they're denying the dangers of COVID and global warming. Instead of closing schools, they force teachers to expose themselves to disease and harass and threaten them if they dare teach actual science and the actual history, racial history of the United States. Instead of requiring the payment of church taxes to vote, as they did in Massachusetts and New Hampshire back in the day, they now just, you know, have these elaborate ways that you have to prove your citizenship, and they regularly purge what they refer to as undesirable people from voting rolls with no consequence at all. Supreme Court, wink and a nod, no problem. From Ben Franklin's time until today, every generation of Americans have confronted right-wing authoritarians who are bent on maintaining violent white male supremacy using these twin levers of religious fanaticism and concentrated wealth. And I, frankly, it's probably beyond human nature to stop this from happening again, but we need to realize that what's going on is nothing new. This has been around for a long, long time it has to do with authoritarian, mostly men, mostly white men, mostly Christian white men. But it has played out in other, you know, it's playing out right now in the Middle East with authoritarian uh, Muslim men. And, you know, you've got now ISIS-K in Afghanistan. This is nothing new, but we have to take it on. And not 
with guns and bullets. I mean, we have to take it. This is a war of ideas. This is this is modernity versus the 14th century. Tom Harbin here with you. So number one, how best to deal with these democracy hating, religious cult, QAnon believing right wingers? I really think that the attorney for the U.S. Army and for that young army soldier, I believe his name was Walsh, who took on Joe McCarthy back in the 1950s and said, have you no decency at long last, sir? Have you lost all decency, all sense of decency? I think that that's like, you know, one really important way to call them out. And I think teaching people our history, which is what I'm trying to do, you know, on this program and, 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 and what I tried to do with my op-ed today, is pretty important stuff. Now we've got, I mean, you know, it's like everything old is new again, right? In Pennsylvania, this is a guy who wants to be the Northampton, Northampton County Executive in Pennsylvania. He's running for office. He's a Republican candidate for office for basically being, I'm, I'm assuming that County Executive in Pennsylvania is, uh, is sort of like, you know, the, I don't know, I guess County Executive, you know, the head of the county, right? His name, and, and his name is Steve Lynch, and he was in Harrisburg on Sunday for an anti-mask rally and an anti-vaccine rally. And he said, our school boards are done. Here's, here's exactly what he said. When we walk into those school boards, we're going to have everything we need to do to go in there with those nine to nothing school boards that voted to put these masks on children with no scientific. We're going to, it's done. Given them the research and data, do you understand? Forget into these school boards with friggin' data. You go into school boards to remove them. That's what you do. You don't follow, they don't follow the law. You go in and you remove them. I'm going in there with 20 strong men. I'm going to speak to the school board, and I'm going to give them an option. They can leave or they can be removed. He says it's time to make men men again. What was one of the main messages of Donald Trump's candidacy? Oh, that's right. Lock up that Hillary Clinton. How dare a woman have the audacity of running for president? How dare she? It's, it's like we, we are, there is a part of our uh, lizard brains, <laughs> and I, I say that knowing, oh my God, where, are they, where is that going to, where are they going to, what are they going to do with that? Anyhow, there's a part of our, of our brainstem, of our lower brain, that is still living in the 13th century, and we need to wake the hell up. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Are you having any success waking some of these folks up to modernity? Or do we have to just, like, leave them behind? VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tom Harbin here with you. I, this, this poem by John Greenleaf Whittier is just so incredible. Let me just share a little bit with you. It starts out, you know, the tale is one of an evil time when souls were fettered and thought was crime, and heresy's whisper above its breath meant shameful scouring and bonds and death. He's talking about an incident that happened in the mid-1600s, in, in the 1660s. The tossing spray of Cocheco's fall hardened to ice on its rocky wall as through Dover town in the chill gray dawn, three women passed at a cart tail drawn, bared to the waist for the north wind's grip and keener sting at the constable's whip. The blood that followed each hissing blow froze as it sprinkled the winter snow. So into the forest they held their way by winding river and frost-rimmed bay. Over wind-swept hills that felt the beat of the winter sea at their icy feet. Once more the torturing whip was swung. Once more keen lashes the bare flesh stung. Oh, spare, they are bleeding, a little maid cried and covered her face, the sight to hide. If their cry from the whipping post and jail pierced sharp as the Kenites' driven nail, O women at ease in these happier days, forbear to judge of thy sister's ways. It's not the entire poem. It's the parts that I quote in the article. There is a link to the whole poem if you want to read it. But it's just, I mean, here we are all over again. And we keep thinking that it's new. We keep thinking that these things, that, you know, denying science, you know, taking, taking horse paste, uh, <laughs> you know, believing, believing that, uh, you know, God is going to save you when God already sent you a vaccine, if you want to put it in that frame. And then God sent you masks. And then God sent you the idea of social distancing. And still you think, well, you know, I, you know. What is it? Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. I mean, uh, isn't that isn't that from Deuteronomy? Am I remembering correctly? I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It is it is such an amazing time. How how do you how do let me just toss this to you? You know, are you seeing the echoes of, for example, Joe McCarthy in this? And if so, what lesson can we learn? I mean, Joe McCarthy got brought down by somebody calling him out. Have you no decency at long last, sir? Was what, as I recall, Mr. Walsh, Walsh who was the, the lawyer for that, that young uh, army guy, said to Joe McCarthy, have you no decency at long last, sir? 
And I think that this, this is the most powerful, the single most powerful message is to point out the fundamental indecency, the fundamental inhumanity, the fundamental brutality, the fundamental lack of respect for life and the living that is reflected by these people, by the, the current incarnation of the Republican Party operating as they are off the psychopathy of Donald Trump, which we'll discuss with Dr. Frank. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child, the Tibetan woman sterilized, the Afghan woman jailed, the housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat 
chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence, perhaps most notably mass shootings. That a lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gathered data from local police departments and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. So I was reading this piece by Bob Brigham over at Raw Story, and, and it was a, about a study that was done by uh, Roy Perilous, who uh, teaches medicine at the Harvard Medical School. And of this, he said, it's pretty striking. He said, in our most recent survey, we asked our 20,000 U.S. respondents about four items of misinformation related to vaccine. One in five believes at least one of them. And about half the people we asked weren't sure of at least one of them. So then he goes on to say, if you believe at least one of these five items, you're about half as likely to be vaccinated. And then it gets really interesting. He says, among those people, we see high rates of depression among people who believe disinformation. We've seen rage. Basically, he's talking about believing these lies that you find on Facebook and other social media are making people mentally ill or challenging them. So I wanted to get you know, our resident expert on all things mental on the program, I mean that in the most positive way possible, Dr. Justin Frank, the psychoanalyst, clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, author of Trump on the Couch, Obama on the Couch, Bush on the Couch, no doubt an upcoming Biden on the Couch, sir. Uh, <laughs> Justin Frank, MD on Twitter, welcome back. Thank you, Tom, it's good to be back. Um, this is quite a, an interesting study that's been uh, published, basically. Um, and the interview was conducted on MSNBC uh, with uh, <clears throat> uh, Alicia Menendez on uh, Saturday, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, there's an increase in depression among people who are uh, believers of misinformation, especially anti-vaxxers. And one of the things 
that he said also that's important, though, is that there's already an increased depression since COVID. I've had more patients who are depressed. There's more issues to deal with since COVID. People feel alone, isolated, unhappy, anxious, and frightened. So I think that one of the things that's important to remember is that all of us have what's called an average expectable environment inside. We have it from childhood, from uh, being served food properly, going to school, parents, all of those things. It's an average expectable environment. But right now the environment is not average, nor is it expectable. So there's much more anxiety in general among people. So. I thought that the interview was very interesting with uh, with the psychiatrist at Harvard at Mass General because what I come away with is that basically um, malign that basically that misinformation is malignant. Hmm. It is dangerous to the mental health. It's like a psychological poison. It is, it's like a psychological poison, exactly. And to make it even more complicated, it's a psychological poison even to those who don't follow the misinformation. Because we become, those of us who really follow, shall we say, Dr. Fauci and the CDC and uh, support mask mandates, um, it also makes us a little bit uneasy to have other people questioning the very authorities and the very people that we follow and eventually it can cause us to doubt our own self and our own facts and i think that this misinformation is really poison it poisons the system on for the entire country so even if you don't watch fox you could be poisoned by fox hmm. if you don't watch any of those uh, things from Hannity to uh, Tucker Carlson, you can be poisoned by them. Because what's happening is that it's very important to remember, we used to say this in uh, when we were dealing with psychotic patients at Harvard, um, there's a whole kernel of wheat in every Wheaties flake. In other words, there's a whole kernel of truth, even if the people who are very misinformed are uh, misinformed about facts, there's some reason they get enraged. There's some reason they are afraid to take the vaccine. And part of it is misinformation, but part of it is, what about just the basic reason that they love their children too, and they're afraid for their children's safety? So once you get with fear, you have a lot of uh, susceptibility to fear, paranoid anxiety, and misinformation, and you end up trying to protect someone you love. So when they, I don't know if you saw the program or did you just read the Raw Story article, in the program they showed people really crying, women, when they were talking about their children at a uh, PTA meeting in um, Michigan, I think it was. It was very moving. People were quite sad and scared and concerned, and they didn't know who to believe. And so what happens when you get this kind of misinformation, most people retreat to binary thinking. We retreat to thinking about either or, either you're an anti-vaxxer or you're, shall we say, sane, like you and I are. Um, and and we end up having an either-or way of thinking about things, and that can interfere with all kinds of communication. 
the thing that you don't know about if you didn't see the program was there were two doctors on that program. One was Dr. Perlis, the psychiatrist, and the other doctor was a, a woman uh, anesthesiologist. And it was very interesting because he was talking about how to listen, how to communicate, how to understand. And the woman who was the anesthesiologist said, I don't have any patience for these people anymore. Uh, I'm sick of trying to listen to them. We have to get vaccinated now and wear masks now. We have an urgent crisis now. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, that's a psychiatrist and an anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologists put people to sleep so they don't bother the surgeon. And, uh, you know, it was a very interesting discussion. Uh, Dr. Frank, we're talking with Dr. Justin Frank, the uh, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, himself a psychiatrist. Um, back in the in uh, prior to the Reagan Revolution, and then in the late 1970s, the the Pew organization uh, has been doing studies going back to the 50s of you know, do you trust government to do the right thing? Do you trust your elected officials to do the right thing? Variations on that question. And what they found was that uh, pre-1980, more than 70, I'm doing this from memory, so I don't have the exact numbers, but it was well over 70%, 74, 77%, something like that. Somewhere in the 70% of Americans said, yes, I trust the government. Now, you know, we were putting yes. men on the moon. Uh, certainly there was, there was still, you know, debate and disagreement. I mean, this was, the Vietnam War had, had, had just ended, right? Um, so there was still a lot of doubt, but still, the majority of people, yes, I trust the government. They did, Pew did the similar study last year, and the number was 17%. And what we find wow. is that in the 70s, a group of right-wing billionaires following the marching orders of uh, Lewis Powell and his 1971 Powell memo created a whole series of think tanks that then led to the presidency of Ronald Reagan, who's when he was sworn into office on January 20th of 1981 in his inaugural address, he said, government is not the solution to your problem. Government is the problem. And for 40 years, we have been told that you can't trust government. And Donald Trump, of course, that was the, how he launched his campaign. You can't trust government. They are lying to you. The system is rigged. They're letting in illegal aliens who are going to take your jobs and rape, rape your women, blah, 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 blah. So when we have now a genuine crisis that can really only be dealt with by something as large as government, and we've had a 40-year campaign by billionaires who are running this campaign don't trust government purely for two reasons number one they want their taxes lowered and and they don't want to have to pay for public services and number two they want their businesses deregulated they want to be able to blow as much poison out of their oil refineries as they can but the outcome of that has been that americans have lost their faith in government what do we do with this well, I have to uh, write another book uh, based on what you just asked, because I really think it's, it's a core problem. Disinformation is malignant. It's very important to try to help people to trust their government. The issue is, did people ever trust their parents? And what happens when their parents were dethroned, when they realized their parents were just people and they couldn't answer all the questions? Usually government is there as a positive force when you're five or six years old as one of the things you can trust plus religion uh, and you know plus learning about civics and history so i think that there's a serious problem here because how to restore trust 
is a very hard thing when trust is broken. But I think that trust is not as broken as the Pew uh, poll suggests. It's that there's more doubt hmm. and distrust in terms of not being confident. Sort of what Reagan said about Russia, trust but verify. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more that's going on. And the question is, how do you even go about that? And I think that the problem with misinformation, which is malignant and it is a poison, is that it gets people scurrying away from doubt into certainty. So there are two camps now, those who trust it and those who don't. And that is the problem. I would like to restore doubt so people can start to think again. Because Hmm. one of the things that's important is being able to have nuanced thinking and not see things in black and white, either or. Because I think some of the anti-maxers have some element of concern that some of the people who are in favor of mandates also share. By the way, government was under attack in the 50s, so we have to go back further, by Senator Joseph McCarthy. And he said the government was full of communists and homosexuals in those days. And people really were afraid of him and afraid of government. And then they got more positive about government after McCarthy was thrown out and then went Eisenhower. I don't want to go through the whole history, but it's very important. Because people were so distrustful that Mort Saul, a comedian, once told a story of talking with a congressman. And McCarthy said, the government's full of communists and homosexuals. And this congressman said, Mr. McCarthy, is it okay to belong to both groups? (laughs) That's the level of distrust. Right, right. And, and, And let's not forget our humor. Dr. Justin Frank, no, it's always great, good. always great talking with you and following you, Justin Frank MD on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 